You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. My name is Peter, and on behalf of Lawrence, who sadly cannot be here tonight, uh, but can feel the love, we're, we're documenting this. And um, he is just so immensely thrilled so far with mm. everything that's been going on. There's a lot happening. We have calendars at the front counter. I encourage you all to take one. This is also online if you want to learn all the events that are coming up between now and next week. And there is quite a bit going on. Um, please do grab a calendar on the way out or visit the website. So uh, it would seem natural that Lawrence Ferlinghetti would produce a new book for his 100th birthday. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the tone is very autobiographical, but in a poetic and, uh, I guess you could say, uniquely Ferlinghetti-esque way. Um, the trajectory of Lawrence's life, as many of us know, has been, I guess you can use the word operatic. Um, it wouldn't be far from the truth. Uh, he's worn many, many hats in his life. He's been a poet, a painter, a publisher, a bookseller combat veteran. Most people don't realize that he actually served during D-Day. Uh, he was on sub chasers and also was one of the first people to walk on Nagasaki weeks after the bomb was dropped. This was of course to really kind of um, have a very powerful effect on his politics and his kind of social consciousness. Um, he's been an outspoken socialist a uh, successful business owner. He has gone from being poor to being rich to being poor, grant, to being poor again. Um, he grew up in the advent of industrialism. And uh, this is really very, very significant because um, one of the reasons he began the very first all-paperback bookstore, and this is very significant because at the time, uh, you know, there had been pulp books you could get at a you know, supermarket stand or a drugstore, but all of a sudden you could find academic quality style paperbacks. And he became very conscious of this. And from them came City Lights Books. And since then, both as a bookseller and as a publisher, because inaugurating the Pocket Poet series, which was really trying to make these very handy, very affordable books of poetry available to as wide a number of people. So, um, these are all very, very important things also, and I need to mention um, his relationship to uh, freedom of speech, which we can't ignore. Uh, the publishing of Howell in the ensuing landmark court case <laughs> truly opened the way uh, for a lot of other publishers like Barney Rossett and so on to, to bring books into print that otherwise wouldn't have, and of course, since we were a bookstore, that was win-win for everybody. Um, so, little boy, beautifully captures that aura of a life lived fully and in depth. And so we're really very, very happy that all of you could join us tonight. And the fact that we have this all-star cast uh, speaking on Lawrence's behalf. Actually, you know, we recorded a few minutes of Lawrence. So we'll play him at the very end. He, he's, he's a little frail right now, but his mind is still active and he still produces. So... Uh, the most any of us could hope for at that age. I think it's it's really quite quite wonderful, and he is again really thrilled that you are all with us here tonight. So each of our guests is going to be reading an excerpt from the book. Um, 
we're going to read in a kind of a loose chronological order. Um, Lawrence didn't sign any books. It's very difficult for him to sign large numbers, but we have stamped all of our books with a very special stamp that Lawrence designed for the occasion. So the books are available, and this is kind of a limited edition. Uh, so is Andrew Sean Greer here with us? I'm here. Oh, fabulous. God, that's great. So, so um, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, author of the novel Less, also Confessions of Max Tivoli, and several others. Uh, thank you for doing this. Welcome. I'm so honored. <laughs> so, it's all you. I think if we each speak forever, it's going to take forever, and I'm going to have much um, less um, important things to say than the other writers here. So I think, I know, if I were a writer being honored, even on my 100th birthday, I would want someone to say something about my newest book. Um, so it's really fantastic. And uh, I, as he said, like, he's as sharp as ever. I think it's so wonderful. It begins in a very classical mode, and then it starts to lose its mind. You're worried. You're like, where's Lawrence Ferlinghetti? He's totally here. Um, so I'm just going to read a few pages and then pass the baton off to the next one. Um, and I chose this because I like to sit in the Cafe Trieste and um, mm. chat with the, the, the people there. <laughs> and so, sitting in the Cafe Trieste, San Francisco, where nothing ever changes decade after decade. <laughs> the face has changed, but it's the same characters drawn from the population of the world and where am I with my constant companion, my lonely self. And the only plot of this book, of my life, being my constant aging. Even as Mac the Knife keeps singing, I tell you, I tell you, you must die, you must die. And it's like waiting for the other shoe to drop. It's like waiting for God or Godot, who will never come but is bound to come. Don't yawn. I know you're still young and easy under the apple boughs. And it's a fine sunny day on earth, so why worry about who's making it spin? And what do I need a God for anyway when I've got me, 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 who'll never die? Or like Beckett, am I entering my monologue stage? <laughs> like George Whitman in Paris, aged almost a hundred, and the last time I saw Paris, I was with Giacometti, who made all those skinny, anonymous sculptures everyone called universal, when they were really only anonymous. And why didn't he do squishy figures like Gert Rude Stein, for aren't there just as many fat men as skinny women, etc., etc.? But the fact is, most artists do figures most resembling their own. And you can imagine Giacometti never ate. He was too busy recreating himself in stick figures. And Beckett had a skinny consciousness, too, just like his writing, very skinny and shorn of accoutrement-like flesh of words writing just the bare bones, as I saw him once in the bank of the Café Select, 1948, bundled up in a thin top coat, shivering in the Montparnasse winter, and himself looking like he hadn't eaten in a week, like he was still in the resistance since this was before he started waiting for Godot, and before it got famous at the Théâtre de Poche or somewhere like that, and Beckett, always like a shadow of himself, like Giacometti and T.S. Eliot in his wasted land, as thin as proof rock with his trousers rolled, and come to think of it like William Seward Burroughs, author, another thin man, El Hombre Invisible, as he was called, the old hip hustler, always ready to disappear should the fuzz show up. He was there, but not there, even when signing his books in City Lights Bookstore, 
the original genius con man even later when he didn't need to be and was clean, if you know what I mean. He cleaned up, as they say, and leading a straight life in Lawrence, Kansas, except for what he might have been growing on the back 40. Yeah, he was clean as a shotgun barrel, if you know what I mean. And you might say he wrote all of Naked Lunch years before without ever eating it or breakfast on the grass, for that matter, while shooting it up in a narrow room in that fleabag hotel in the Latin Quarter in skinny Dr. Benway. Somewhere else, also cooking it up, saba, 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 lada, and that's the skinny of it, the syllabus of the skinny lit tradition for professors to micturate over with Don Quixote, skinny as his horse, lost in the Sierra Morena, lit up in a flash of lightning in black of night. So our next guest needs little introduction. His name is not only synonymous with the literary scene, but really with San Francisco itself, which he is really kind of helped to kind of create this wonderful imaginal for the rest of the world. Um, he is, of course, the best-selling author of that grand piece of San Francisco literature, Tales of the City, and author of many, many other books, The Days of Anna Madrigal, Marianne in Autumn, Michael Tolliver Lives, and so on. Mr. Maupin hosted a wonderful tribute to um, Christopher Isherwood a few years ago, which we actually still, to this day, very, very kind of kind of reminiscent, and it's uh, wonderful to have him back with us. Please join us in welcoming Armstead Mullen. I hung out here for uh, three days earlier in the year uh, because we were shooting a scene at City Lights, which is the uh, for the new Netflix miniseries, or series, um, that involves the time when Anna Madrigal, my transgender landlady, um, comes to San Francisco and gets her first job at City Lights here. Because <laughs> she's been reading Ginsburg in the park and she saw the, uh, the name under the book. So it was a literary thing that brought her here. And what fun that, that sequence was for us. Now, <laughs> you're filming this, aren't you? It's riveting. It's magic. It's riveting. <laughs> Old Queen looks for his glasses. <laughs> <laughs> there were some fangirls out front. Who were they? It's fabulous. I never had fangirls in North Beach. Um, so nice to see you, Andy. It's been too long. Yeah. In addition to writing a winning a Pulitzer Prize, he wrote an adorable book that, if you haven't read it yet, less, you must. Um, <clears throat> so then, dan dancing on the ed end of the world, edge of the world, sang some Indian on the far shore of San Francisco, before it became a pale-faced city, and Indians danced on Alcatraz, before pale-faced made Alcatraz into a prison to jail all of the outcasts and half-castes on a golden continent where pale-faced taught us to drink hot brown water in the morning and cold brown water and fire water in <laughs> bottles on street corners <clears throat> on lost reservations and in indigenous chaos. Hey, ain't that the long and the short of it, the life and death of the Indian nation while the rest of us were spooning along hot on the trail of instant gratification or not so instant, instant, <clears throat> instant maybe, but your own and deviled, 
But get your... Oh, you practiced, Andy. I hate you. <laughs> 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 it's all right. You're doing well. <laughs> but get your own, and devil take the rear quarters of the beast of life, but the old Indian myth of San Francisco, once being an island, still persisted among the pale face, who took over several centuries ago, and the myth persisted as late as the middle of the 20th century, when still on the streets of San Francisco, you could encounter citizens who thought of San Francisco as a kind of offshore republic, not really a part of the greater United States. Yes, indeed, San Franciscans then still had a kind of insular island mentality and all descended from the first non-bourgeois settlers of San Francisco's wild gold seekers, layabouts, gamblers, whores, drifters, con men, card sharks, and rogue cowboys from the open range before the West was fenced and Civil War draft evaders and ladies of easy virtue, as they were called. And yeah, man, the first settlers of San Francisco, a veritable rogues gallery with sailors and seafarers from all over the world and robber barons and, well, you name it, was a fine scurvy crew ready for anything, including the earthquake and fire of 1906. Yeah, yeah, and that beginning for a whole new ball game, a whole new city rising from the ashes like a phoenix, they said. And it was true, uh, that is, if you had <clears throat> hit gold or a rich widow or a jackpot somewhere, <clears throat> and our hero almost al verde, as they say in Italiano, walking up Market Street after crossing Oakland Ferry like Whitman, Whitman crossing Brooklyn Ferry, or so he thought, with his sea bag still with him slung over his shoulder, but no albatross still in it since he had shuffled it off to Paris <coughs> and so into the new world. <laughs> it's like calisthenics. <laughs> um, and the last frontier as it still existed in the wild west of our imaginations, where the actor's workshop in San Francisco later performed Waiting for Godot before the waiting inmates of San Quentin Prison. These specialists in waiting who do nothing but wait for some unimaginable liberator and so left it up to the inmates of the world, all of us spinning through the space on the surface of this turning place from which we cannot escape, at least not most of us, except for the privilege to catch a seat in some future spacecraft headed for some other star, haha, as if they could actually live on it, since they, <laughs> once they got there, disembarked into the ultimate unimaginable, oh man, did you, do you dig? The days spin past and we are but birds upon some divine vine, the grapes of some ecstatic vino we hope to drink. And why not just press the grapes of wrath rather than all the other varietals of grapes and other, <laughs> other psychedelics? Oh, peel me a grape, Cleopatra, and turn me into, yes, the days are endless on this drifting barge on the Nile of our dreams. Oh, what an illusion. But what's wrong with illusions? For if you take away a man's illusions, he will die in some place like the Iceman cometh or the time of your life, waiting in a bar for illusions to materialize, or in San Quentin or in other places where everybody's waiting for something and someone, and so make up your own illusion by looking at yourself in any mirror on the wall of your dreams and in the still pond where fireflies wink. And our hero, having read Soroyan's My Name is Aram, when he was 15, 1930s, some crazy Indian chiefs riding around in limousines, feet up and smoking wild cigars. Or like Jack Lemon's Frisco long ago, when Don't Call It Frisco became the cry of the nabobs living on Knob Hill, who didn't like drunken off riffraff sailors down in the waterfront singing Frisco. <laughs>
it gets crazier. <laughs> Who's next? <laughs> next up is Michael Krasny. Uh, many of you know him as the host of Forum on KQED-FM. Uh, he has interviewed leading figures in culture, politics, science. Uh, he's essentially the quintessential interviewer's interviewer, but also really kind of the conscience of the Bay Area in many ways. Uh, he's a professor of literature at San Francisco State University. He's authored three books, his most recent being Let There Be Laughter, Treasury of Great Jewish Humor, and What It All Means. Welcome, sir. Thank you all for being here and honoring our friend Lawrence Ferlinghetti. This is a crowd that makes me particularly comfortable because it looks like I'm back in time. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> the North Beach crowd. Um, with the demographic that we see all the time when we do fundraisers for KQED. <laughs> also, uh, it's not only a, uh, an honor to be here, but uh, I, I want to honor Lawrence a bit by saying something. We had, did a program just earlier this week, which some of you may heard, have heard, where we had Elaine Kassenberger, who uh, runs this uh, City Lights operation now, publishing operation, and Oscar Villalon from Zizaba. And our own Chloe Beltman, who is uh, a reporter for KQED Creative Arts, and Jack Hirschman said things particularly kind of electrified. It was, uh, it was a fascinating, in many ways, wonderful hour, and it was a great tribute to a great man. I think Lawrence, I should say, is also not only the great versatile figure that we have heard so much about, many of you know, and many of you have made into appropriately an icon, a meritorious icon, but also, he's a very sweet man and a gentle man and a, and a kind man, and I want to honor that in him particularly. He's an icon who merits being an icon, who is deservedly an icon. I was saying briefly to Armistad that I, while I was on the air, I was remembering almost involuntarily. You know, Proust speaks a lot about involuntary memory. And I was remembering lines from Coney Island of the Mind that I hadn't seen in probably half a century, but they stay. And Armistead put it very well when he said, he made a dent on you, didn't he, Michael? And he did indeed. He made a dent probably on everybody here this evening. Uh, I'm going to read a passage from this new book of his. Delighted to do that. He said somewhat modestly, well, it reminds me a lot of Portrait of the Artist by Joyce, but I think he was just being uh, a little bit, well, focusing on the form of the book because it is a quasi-autobiography. Some of you who know uh, the details of Lawrence's life can recognize a lot of them in here, but he's imagined other details in an alternative autobiography. Uh, and I hope you will have an opportunity to read it. I'm delighted to read from it now. And what am I to do with the rest of my life, or your life, as the days rave on, the nights too, the long nights, as the days goes on? And where are we anyway, on the face of existence, in the race for existence, and which way are we facing with our bully boy consciousness? But is not the laughter the sublime expression of consciousness, which can go from extreme depression to ecstasy, and the final ecstasy, nothing but pure, silent laughter? Oh, the sublimity of it. And if I weren't laughing, I'd be dying. I'd be crying with Samuel Beckett and Jimmy Joyce, the master laugher behind the sublime babble of Finnegan. Yeah, yeah, I have read it all, heard it all, heard the falcon and its dying fall. Oh, white nights and miles of desire and the cry of the morning dove at dawn and the laughter of the universe behind closed shutters late at night when all the world goes sleeping and sleep, the suicide of consciousness, and I am entering my silent stage and no more regurgitation of everything seen or heard or said over the past century, no more of that thank ye and this no more portrait of the oddest, as oddest, as an old man, although this night be my hundredth year to heaven when summer passed me by and every season became 
the same season in my high flat, and no one noticed the leaves coming and going and falling to the cry of flutes. And the dog slept by the TV, unaware of spring at the door, leaves in her hair, flowered with petals, and an ancient voice in the air singing, Primavera, Primavera. And the wind sprang up at four o'clock that day as it had every day for a long time, a steady wind, a great wind, sweeping the universe, never ceasing during the late afternoons, and it stirred the leaves of the great laurel tree outside my window, ceaselessly lashing them, and it was like the mistral, mistral excuse me, in southern France, except the wind came from the far north, and still it blows and blows and blows every day, lashing the leaves, and the only sound, the high laughter, the laughter of the marvelous, the laughter of the invisible, the laughter of the absurd, Oh, I had not known life had undone so many, so many of my friends on earth, all gone, and myself shrunk to an eye left with Samuel Beckett, the unnameable, almost underground, but still thinking. And what does the spinning spindrift pluriverse care, even if it is a kind of verse for all we, uh, for we all blank verse to the blind cosmos with its overwhelming indifference to our fate? And our little universe, not lyric and good and harmonious, but rather made of total chaos, hostility, and murder, as Werner Herzog said, observing the grizzly man being eaten alive by his favorite grizzly, and it's either be eaten all the way down. Oh, man, turn me over. I'm done on this side. But nevertheless, on the other hand, and how many hands do we have? Perhaps in nature, after all, there is a secret innocence hidden beyond the last savannah, deep in some sacred wood wherein I read the carbon copy history of creepy man and his far-out destiny forever shrouded, and the real tall tale story of your, my life, yet to be told, unwinding like a thread through a labyrinth, a labyrinth or an onion peel down to its core of nothingness. Aha! Uh -huh. Don't you believe it? For there must be more than nothing, especially if you listen to the latest quantum activists telling you that the cosmos has its own consciousness beyond the collective consciousness of individual animal, vegetable, or mineral. And this a quantum leap of aha, insight, saith Dr. Goswami. Oh man, but suppose on the other hand, on the neither hand, this cosmos is nothing but one huge computer in which we are all micropixels, and everyone knows a computer has no consciousness of its own, but is made up of nothing but other consciousnesses, and yet, and yet, even all that is true, there might still be a real prophet, a bully boy, or dame, a fair-haired one, a dark seer, or some other form of conscious talking protoplasm or ectoplasm to light our way to the final ha-ha and final aha and final ah, which is the final rebellion and every act of rebellion expressing a nostalgia for innocence. Thank you, Michael. That was beautiful. Um, next up is Maxine Hong Kingston. She is an award-winning author, one of the Bay Area's literary treasures. Uh, she's written three novels and several works of nonfiction. These include The Woman Warrior, Tripmaster Monkey, The Fifth Book of Peace, uh, Veterans of War, Veterans of Peace. Uh, Maxine has actually done a great deal of work with veterans groups in teaching writing. Uh, she has also garnered many honors for her work, including National Book Critics Circle Award, National Endowment of the Arts Writers Awards, Asian American Literary Award and National Medal of the Arts, amongst others. A great honor to have you. I chose the two pages 
in little boy that are in italics. <laughs> and so they must be very special. And so, but all they are is a description of a place. And so I thought, why, why did Lawrence uh, feel that this was so special that he would highlight it? And I think it may be because there is a, 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 a beautiful, marvelous feeling that comes popping out of this description. And it's done in one long sentence and one short sentence. And it's a, um, and it's a rare feeling. And, and I think maybe, maybe rare, at least rare for me, and, prob- and maybe probably for Lawrence also. And, um, and so he, um, uh, and he, I read it again and again, trying to think, well, this feeling is so good. Um, maybe he can explain to us how we can get it. And, and I think he doesn't tell us. Um, so I'm going to um, read the paragraph that comes before. And it's not in italics. And it's so it, it's sort of sets up the context and uh, this is where he is when he's having these thoughts. While in my homely little neighborhood cafe, a homely little neighborhood fly lights on my table. This fly was once on the wall in a position to hear everything said in the cafe but he was totally bored by the chatter and decided to fly down and light upon bare heads and hear the murmuring of their minds. But I could not hear what the fly heard with his inner ear, our unspoken stream of consciousness. While dreams, too, are part of our consciousness, our shadow consciousness, our first life dreamt before leaving the womb, and it continues on after birth, absorbed in our consciousness, so that it's my old dream of always trying to reach back, to find that place where I was born, but then in actual life, going there and finding it. The birth certificate says 106 Saratoga Avenue, Yonkers. I take the A train to 168th Street, transferred to the number one, and continue on the elevated to Van Cortland Park, then catch a bus north to South Yonkers. It's only a mile or more along the west edge of the park to Carroll Avenue. I get off here on the vague advice of the old black bus driver who waves in the direction he thinks Saratoga Avenue might be. And so, uphill, half a mile on foot, past blocks of dark brick apartment houses, their better days behind them. 
And there's the end of Saratoga Avenue with a mom and pop grocery. An old white man comes out carrying a quart in a paper sack. He looks through me as if I were part of the street and had been there forever. Perhaps I have. I have no memory of the house or its location. It is as if I am looking for someone else's birthplace. Perhaps I am. I pick up my pace, hurrying along maybe three short blocks to 106, where in a small back bedroom, my brother heard my first cry. It echoes now as if I myself had heard it. The little house almost to the crest of the low hill, a gabled wood frame house, two stories with an attic, detached from close by houses, a yard with old cars on one side, and a steep drop in back to a gully with a few tall trees, great old barren oaks and elms, bare ruined choirs. The house itself run down now, asbestos siding over the old wood, and a small screened-in front porch. Inside the flimsy screen door, there's a once handsome oak door with worn brass doorknob and beveled glass upon which gold leaf numerals still show 106, with half the one missing. Three doorbells. Three apartments now? I ring them all with no answer. No one in sight anywhere inside. No sign of life in nearby houses. A kind of country slum, but still a quiet family neighborhood. Across the little street, some Latinos with boombox turned down are hanging out. I walk around back by the old cars and the bare trees and look up at the silent house, looking for that small back bedroom. Kiri, kiri goes a bird just once, like an echo of light. All at once, an incredible, overflowing feeling of happiness <laughs> surges up from nowhere. Born here. Some 300 yards north of the northwest corner of Van Cortlandt Park. It must have been all country back then. The kids must have played ball in this green park with its worn diamond and its ancient rusted screen behind the batter's box. I can hear the bat hit the ball, perhaps pitched by Pop and my brother, running for first base, ended up in Baltimore 40 years later. Shouts and laughter, tears and whispers fill the air. A quick mention, you know, uh, as I said, there's events coming up for the next week. Uh, this coming Saturday at the Roxy Theater, we're gonna be showing Chris Felder's film. I'm gonna be in conversation with him. Uh, next Tuesday 
is going to be an event uh, for two authors that have written a book about the Howell case. So if you have an interest in freedom of speech and things of the sort, uh, on the following Wednesday, we're going to have uh, Giada, who has done a film. It's actually being shown down at the Knesset Gallery um, this coming Sunday. And of course, Sunday, which is the birthday party uh, from 1 to 5 here at City Lights. At 3 o'clock, there's going to be a, a pronouncement from the mayor's office and the board of supervisors. Uh, pronouncing uh, May the 24th as Lawrence Ferlinghetti Day. And so we hope you'll join us. There are going to be people performing. There's going to be readings here at Vesuvio's, at uh, Zoetrope Cafe down the street, and in the evening at Specs. So we really hope to see you all. Um, so very, very fond of the next writer's work. Uh, Shoba Rao is no stranger to City Lights. Uh, she is a Catherine Ann Porter Prize winner, author of the novels An Unrestored Woman and Girls Burn Brighter. Uh, her work has also been anthologized in the uh, Best American Short Stories. Um, welcome again. Good to see you. I have the immense pleasure of reading from the very end of Little Boy. But there are crystal moments in time, crystal moments in all our lives, fleeting past, whether it's sunlight on a face or fog in a fir tree, a flash, a moment in time, yes. Such as when I was three or four and playing hide and seek with my Aunt Emily somewhere in France. And I crouched down behind a wicker sofa on a porch in sunlight and taunt Emily calling over and over, Lou, Lou, Lulu, où es-tu? such as that moment in Paris yesterday, or long ago, when I met my Nadja, my new illusion to live by, looking like a normal person, a normal woman, but as soon as she opens her mouth, you know she is special. And she has a laugh sometimes, as if she were perpetually surprised by life and the absurdity of it. Imagine, good-looking, speaking what she calls her Hollywood French. I imagine all the things I don't know about her, and I know practically nothing, except that she reminded me of my dear Aunt Emily when I was a child in France with her in her cloche hat and her hair cut like Louise Brooks. And I do remember how often when I was with her alone or in company, she would burst forth, Oh, je t'adore, je t'adore, and me only three or four years old, and not realizing I adore you is what most everyone longs to hear all his or her life. Yes, je t'adore is enough for a lifetime of living and dying. And, and now we're separately staying in the Hotel Esmeralda on the left bank, around a corner from Shakespeare and Company bookstore. And Nadja has gone off somewhere, who knows where. While I sit in the window of this little old hotel, which seems to be listening a little, like an old wooden ship at anchor which of course it is. With no elevator and a narrow winding staircase and rooms not much wider than the French windows. And so here I am indulging in the real fantasy that I'm still a young student in Paris. Yes, and why not? Won't I come back another year and find Nadja still here, crying or laughing or talking brightly? And is she not a little like having a gentle wild animal? 
in the house. And she could go off in wild laughter most any time, or talk curiously, crazily on any curious subject. And whoever was with her might say, can't you just make regular conversation? <laughs> she is like the flight of a bird on the wing, aware of the air about her. When I'm with her, my time seems to stand still. Time is on the wing with her. And I sometimes think we would never die as long as we were inside of each other or die together sometime tomorrow. And perhaps Proust has a name for this strange effect when Le Tombe Perdu are never lost and those lost times just stay in the memory bank and accumulate interest or lose interest like a bank account. And so it is with Nadja and me. She's an enfant de paradis, a bird of paradise in the topmost balcony of the world, while I remain here on earth. And I'm still a student in the Sorbonne on the GI Bill, 1947. A little long in the whiskers for a student, though I remember a student with a long white beard at an, at, at an advanced age coming into the Salle Richelieu to defend his thesis on Flaubert's wife, who wrote a woman friend, complaining about her husband's penis being too small, and our scholar claiming he had the documentation to prove it, <laughs> and also stating that he knew for a fact that Madame Flaubert was a hot tomato. <laughs> but this all a long way from the Hotel Esmeralda, where it's been raining lately. But now the sun burst through the thir- burst through over the Ile de France in which Paris nestles like a gray dove. And Nadja has been doing laundry and now appears in a long white dress, perhaps of calico, and floats out front of the little park of Saint-Julien-le-Pouvre in mid-afternoon. And there is a stillness in the air, as if the turning earth stood still a breathlessness as sun floods down upon the park benches where I now sit with Nadja, a stillness in the world enclosing us, with no need for words, for what is there to say anyway, except that we're all here under the dreaming trees, faced only with ourselves. An ant crawls across the table, falls off of it onto the cobblestones. A gardener in baggy pants shows up with a garden hose and attaches it, and magically, water spouts up onto a wilted flower bed. And the hushed silence continues in this little enclave of life. As I imagined, as I imagine, it is a silence of happiness. Nadja, too, engulfed in it. No shadows here, no chiaroscuro, just us in sunlight. Paris may explode. The world may explode. But not here. Not here. Life goes on, and us with it, and there is no end of it. Eternal creation, birthing and dying, dust into dust. As my fantasy dies, as this present fantasy fades, in this eternal moment, realizing that Nadja is in her own world, in her own illusion of the moment, and does not share my fantasy of here and now. And she was never my lover, nor would ever be. And she, and perhaps her consciousness was all chiaroscuro, all shadow, though with her you can never tell where shadows ended or began, a fleeting darkness sometimes flashing across her face as a shadow for a passing bird 
or a driven cloud to vanish an instant from her face. Yet at other times, she could be totally with you. As that late afternoon strolling through the Luxembourg Gardens, the late sun slanting through the high trees by the fountain of the Medicis. As, when, as then, we're sitting by the long pool in front of the classic statues that spout water into the still pool. And we st- sit still on the wrought iron chairs by the still water. As small birds dip by half in sun, half in shade, under the tall trees and the water dappled with shadows of leaves in the late afternoon of that year. And she exclaiming, oh, I'm never going to leave here ever. I'm going to write everyone we're staying here forever. Yes, forever. And little boy, grown up dissident romantic or romantic dissident has his youthful vision of living forever, immortal as every youth is believing his own special identity would never, could never perish. Yes, believing all that in the face of the unrushing fate of the whole human race, which scientists predict will very soon totally perish in the sixth extinction of life on this earth. And that is why the cries of birds now are not cries of ecstasy, the cries of despair. Wow. Wow. You picked well. (laughs) So next up, uh, Julian Poirier is no stranger to City Lights. He is a poet, an editor, a publisher, author of several poetry collections. City Lights actually published uh, his collection out of print which is part of the Spotlight series. Uh, he's the one of the founding members of Ugly Duckling Press Collective, uh, also edited the New York Knights newspaper from 2001 to 2006, and has done much, much more. Great to see you again. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. <clears throat> so the first time I ever saw Lawrence read uh, poetry was in this room, and it was about as crowded as it is now, and afterwards, I made my way up to him, and I handed him a manuscript of poems. This was years and years ago. He rolled his eyes, <laughs> took the manuscript. And I didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks, and then I got a postcard in the mail. And pretty much the first thing he said was, this is really not our kind of book. <laughs> But he then went on and gave me all sorts of advice about who to send it to. And the postcard was written closely all the way across and around the margins. And I still have it somewhere. I should have uh, kept better care of it. But I found it was so gracious. Still looking for a publisher for that, you guys. And looking back over the lost terrain, the great misrememberer with myopic vision sees only himself in the shorn landscape of half-overturned vehicles of desire and misread signs at country crossroads pointing different directions, like Kerouac in Brittany, looking for his lost family with wooden signposts pointing to tiny hamlets, all beginning with K-E-R. And him getting drunker and drunker on native Calvados that Yanks used in their cigarette lighters in World War II, or poor Karuk believing in baby Jesus drunk or sobered up, wandering errant among the tangled branches 
of his family tree like our boy looking for his roots. Aye, what a far out search it was looking for lost hearts and you can't go home again. And all that, no matter how many roots you dig up, no matter how much he unearthed trying to reassemble it or piece it together, some mute stone angel in his own recoleta, or oh, what's to be salvaged from the shards and broken pieces of marble with illegible inscriptions and a detached hand pointing skyward while all the while he's growing up into a culture of consumer gatherers, motivated mostly by pure greed. And why would he be attracted by the ideal of an anarchist society with no place to call home, or wouldn't he have been better off seeking humanity in new forms of art, and so become a great artist, and the mind of man and the brute instinct mingled in him, ludic and ludicrous, little man. But the boy begins with feelings and emotions, and the mind weaves them into his story, his narrative. And as we grow older, our softer parts grow harder, and our hard parts softer, and our inner fish has the skeleton of a fish gasping on the beach, listening to Benny Goodman blowing on his licorice stick in a big band, and D.H. Lawrence holding Aaron's phallic rod in his hand, all reflected in the boy growing up in old Manhattan Full of all the adolescent hungers and obsessions, including the urge to waylay the buxom wife next door thrice his age, no matter a breast is a breast. Wherever imagined in the mind of an urchin on the night streets, the heartless streets, the stone canyons with flashback memories cast upon the mind screen of the fourth person singular who is your other, your inexpressible you, who cannot be put into words. And so am I here regurgitating the sound memory of my race, my mind, and echo chamber of everything ever said or sung in the history of man and or woman or woman, the incubator of mammal life, sweet singer in my ear echoing all sentient beings in every tongue and tone while the moving finger writes and having writ erases all of it with the blackboard eraser of failing memory in an empty house at nightfall by an abandoned pumping station on a dry delta where still in the distance can be seen the bright pulsing lights of a riverboat casino with its steamboat whistle sending out cries of promised riches and naked nudes, wailing with lust, calling out to a solitary figure in the gloaming, aye, but still there must be in spite of all a way forward through the morass of life. And who am I to say pie is not God? Oh man, just give us the dear flesh to live and breathe in forever. I, mates, too long at sea, too starved without the all-embracing blind heat of warm flesh pulsing in the deep night, the libido itch in the crotch of love. <laughs> Years later, 
His mother, Clemence Albertine Mendes Monsanto, was born in Providence, Rhode Island, to Sephardic parents who had migrated from St. Thomas, Virgin Islands, where the family had been established for a very long time as wealthy planters until the collapse of the sugar market in the late 1890s impoverished them. The family had originally fled the Inquisition in Spain and Portugal, but didn't arrive in the New World in steerage with nothing but their clothes. They arrived with all their possessions in steamer trunks, including candelabras, gold, and jewels, and thus were able to set up as merchants and planters in St. Thomas, where they soon had a great house on a hill with wide verandas looking down on the center of the town. And the family album showed them in broad-brimmed hats and black string ties. St. Thomas was a Danish crown colony until America snatched it in the early 20th century, and the Monsantos had intermarried with the Danes as well as with French settlers. And there were many French relatives who visited and were visited in France. Clemence Albertine had a French mother of vague aristocratic origins, and she still spoke French. And so it went that Clemence Albertine's uncle, Barry Emily, from northern France, and thus it was that Emily, who had always wanted a child, came and took the newborn Laurent from his distraught mother and bore him off to France by herself. And so it was that Tante Emily took him back to her hometown near Strasbourg, the town near where the famous Captain Dreyfus was from when he was perhaps two years old. And there they lived long enough for him to speak French before English. And his very first memory of existence was being held on a balcony above the boulevard where a parade was going by. And someone was waving his hand at the great parade with band music wafting up and strains of the Marseillaise echoing. And the next thing he remembered was that they were back in New York in a big high ceiling apartment on the Upper West Side overlooking the Hudson and the Palisades across the Great River and steamboats hooting their whistles and Aunt Annemalee and Ludwig's somehow back together again. He had a prickly beard when he embraced little boy and the sun shone on them for a brief time until suddenly Uncle Ludwig was not there anymore and this time for good. So then again it was himself and Aunt Emily in the big elegant flat but not for long because she had no money and soon a health department man came and took him away to an orphanage in Chappaqua, New York because she has no money to buy him milk and the man said little boy would develop rickets. And there was much weeping when they took him away from Emily. And so it was, he stayed in that orphanage. And years later, the only memory he had of it was having to eat undercooked tapioca pudding. He 
kids called cat's eyes. Well, the time lost, and no other memory of it. Until a year later, Aunt Emily came and got him, and it was still the 1920s in America. And how he remembered her back then. She wore plush hats and had her hair cut short like Louise Brooks and wore always the same elegant dress in the 1920s style with love cut bosom and a long string of beads and scent of eau de cologne always about her. And of course it was not always except in little boy's memory, but must have been her threadbare elegance well hidden in her elegant spoken French that got her a position as French governess to the 18-year-old daughter of Anna Lawrence Brisland and Presley Eugene Brisland in Bronxville, New York, where they lived in a, an ivy-covered mansion not far from Sarah Lawrence College, founded by Anna Lawrence's father. And so Aunt Emily came and got him. And so began their mother in a third floor room near the attic where steamer trucks with canard lined stickers on them shared space with old saddles and ancient bric-a-brac. But little boy remembered especially the dinner every night in the formal dining room. The Dutch butler who also served as chauffeur and was not used to butling and juggled the service dishes while Tante Emily conversed in French with beautiful daughter Sally and the parents at opposite ends of the long table chiming in from time to time or at least Madame Bislet did for it was stylish back then to speak French and make grand tours of the continent especially Paris and then Emily no doubt charmed them until a few months later she must have charmed Presley Bislin a little too much. And suddenly Aunt Emily was gone from the house. And they told little boy that Emily had gone away on her day off and had never come back. Now, inasmuch as the Bislins had a baby boy named Lawrence who had died in infancy, it seemed an act of divine providence that they had now been provided with another Laurence. And so it went, and little boy went on with them in the late 1920s in that fine mansion in Lawrence Park West, Bronxville. But he was of school age by then, and they first sent him off to boarding school at Riverdale Country School at Riverdale on Hudson, of which little boy remembers nothing but a kind headmaster looking after him, the youngest boy in the school. And they had a summer camp in the Adirondacks where a little boy learned to swim and tie knots. And so for the first time, the great woods, the huge straight pines, the shivering lakes, the hidden streams, and the light shining down on them as in the first morning of the world.
Lawrence sends his love to all of you. Thank you for being part of this. Uh, there's more to come. Please come on Sunday. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's it's really a bit of a carnival of sorts. And uh, so, um, thank you all. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.